2: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture. And today I am here with Chris Richardson, the author of Batman and the Joker, Contested Sexuality and Popular Culture. Chris, thanks for being here.
1: Thank you very much, Rebecca. So
2: I'm hoping you can start by talking a little bit about how you got interested in writing about Batman and the Joker and looking at sexuality and sexual identity within this um this these comics
1: yeah sure i mean like most people probably growing up in north america i grew up in toronto actually and um you know i read some batman comics and i was always a fan i I loved michael keaton and i i really tried to get in to see the batman the first batman movie with tim burton but my parents wouldn't let me because i was four years old at the time but um but yeah so i've always liked batman but only during my phd when I was reading a lot of critical theory and uh, gender and sexuality studies, my PhDs in media studies, I started to really think about it. And Batman was my sort of escape from all of the dissertation and preparation stuff because my dissertation wasn't on that. But I would read Batman comics, among other things, to kind of relax after reading you know, a full book of like Heidegger or something. And so I had this in the back of my mind. And when I saw a call from Routledge um, by Frederick Colhert, who's the, the main editor of the series on uh, focus series with Routledge on gender, sexuality, and comics, I just thought this is perfect. And so it literally took me like five to 10 minutes to make a rough draft of the proposal and to, um, to think about it. But anyway, so it's been on my mind for a very long time. But it just poured out of me this year when I actually wrote the book, and it is designed to question how those two really big important symbols of, in popular culture today and for the last 80 years or so represent and reproduce ideas more broadly about gender and sexuality. And so that's where Batman and the Joker come in. And that's kind of where it got started. It's a couple of decades in the, in the making, but um, yeah, I wrote it this year.
2: Uh, and, you know, I'm wondering before we sort of get into the, the book, if we want to for anybody, <laughs> the few people out there who, so, who don't um, know a bit about the history of Batman, sort of when Batman started to appear on the scene, if you want to give a little bit of sort of a primer introduction to sort of that sort of history of Batman uh, that sort of brings us into sort of how you got into looking at different comics and looking at different series and and and, and getting us to where we are in your book.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, Batman has been around since 1939, and he came as part of a, a wave of Golden Age comics heroes that was actually based on earlier comics or earlier stories, I should say, from the pulps. And so detective stories... Um, The Phantom, Dick Tracy, um, all of these kind of really early comics and uh, pulp heroes we see. And then Superman came and then Batman came shortly after that. And so he's, uh, he's a product of his time, which is, you know, 1930s. But he's also somebody that has continued until now and remains or maybe has even gotten more popular over time. And so he's changed quite a bit which is why he's interesting in my opinion to study among other reasons because he has that 80 years or so history Um, but yeah so batman was created by bob kane and for a long time it was only bob kane but only recently people have given more credit to bill finger who was the artist and possibly quite a bit more uh, of the creator not necessarily more than bob kane but uh, he was he was like a silent partner until recently and now he's included and so Yeah. Batman was around in the early comics. He was one of the first major comics heroes. He's definitely an American icon, much like Superman. He's kind of like the the dark shadow to Superman's kind of glowing American colors and, uh, you know, blue and red and flying. Superman is uh, a hero who has all the, he's a man of steel. Batman is a very human character because he doesn't have any superpowers, but he's, you know, very proficient fighter to say the least, but also a very smart person. And um, Michael uh, Us- Uslin, who wrote a book called The Boy Who Loved Batman, he's in charge of, um, or he helped create a lot of the movies that came out. And uh, he's in the background of a lot of Batman and, and Hollywood setups. He makes the argument that you can kind of walk into any place and ask people about Batman. And, you know, from a young kid to a grandmother, whoever. They'll be able to say the basics. Most people know the basics, which is that Batman was a young boy who was very rich, whose parents were very rich, but who were gunned down and he was left orphaned and so he was taken care of in his manner by Alfred the Butler. And he goes to avenge his parents by fighting crime. And so that's the basic premise. And of course it's changed and people have played with it for a long time. But so Batman is a crime fighter who was, um, you know, whose parents were tragically killed. And so that's the basic premise. And then the Joker was created almost around the same time, just shortly after Batman himself was created. And the Joker is uh, the clown prince of crime, and he, he has various origin stories. And so, you know, I don't want to get into all the debate that we could, but um, basically the Joker is the opposite of Batman in many ways. And that's what I tease out in the book. And the Joker is, yeah, he looks like a clown and he's based on a clown. He's actually based on a few representations, one in Coney Island of this very scary looking guy named uh Stace, uh or Steeplechase, sorry. He was a uh, representative of one of the Coney Island parks. And so anyway, that's where Bob Kane and Bill Finger got inspired by him. And so he's just an evil mastermind and the two of them have been going at it for more than 80 years and... Yeah, there's been movies, there's been books, there's been billions of dollars in merchandise, and that's where we are now, I think.
2: Right. And, and I have to, I appreciated that you also talk about as campy as many Batman um, fans say it is that that 1960s television Batman is what has kept us, has sort of in some ways kept Batman alive today.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a rich history that you could really unpack about Batman. I try to do a sort of summary in the book. It's not the main focus, but it's important to understand some of that history. So yeah, Batman was created in 39, became very popular right away. Robin was introduced shortly after. Uh, But then in the 50s, Frederick Wortham, a psychiatrist in New York, was uh, very adamant that Batman and other comics were bad for kids. And so comics really suffered after that because they took off any allusion to, uh, you know, crime in, in anything but a very cartoonish way. And they went into all these hijinks like outer space and, you know, alternative universes and stuff, but it wasn't, it wasn't as appealing as the early comics were. And so a lot of fans dropped off and a lot of people will argue that if the Adam West series in 66 hadn't opened up Batman to a new audience, Batman may likely be dead right now, in terms of you know, not no stories, no comics, no movies. Uh, that that's definitely a possibility if things had gone a different way. So even though a lot of people don't necessarily like the um, the Batman of the '60s, I mean, some do, some don't. But he's more campy, he's more fun, uh, he's not to be as taken, he's not to be as serious as the newer Batman with uh, Christian Bale, for example, or or any of the more recent iterations, either in comics or movies. So yeah, if we didn't have that uh, revitalization in the 60s, we probably wouldn't be talking about Batman right now.
2: Um, And so one of the things that, uh, again, to sort of set up, that you talk about in your introduction is that we've had a great deal of people look at that relationship between Batman and Robin and sexualizing that or, or, or looking at those the elements there, but you were sort of moving away from that and, and talk a bit about this idea of really queering Batman, right? And so can you talk about that idea of queering Batman, what you mean by that, and how that sort of lays the foundation for what you discuss?
1: Yeah, for sure. And so well, I've read a lot of queer theory or things that can be fall under that umbrella of queer theory. I just want to start by saying I'm not the representative of queer theory. And so many people disagree about what that word means, what queer means, and all of these related terms that what I use is basically what I call a queering or a queer reading, which is on, on its most surface level, just asking questions about what are the expectations of and what are what is considered normal or not normal, and how are we given these messages, and how do we interpret these messages? And that, I I think, is a very broad level uh, queer reading. It's just simply asking questions that most people, if you're picking up a comic, wouldn't necessarily think about asking. And so, inspired by that, and a lot of the the great writers whom I quote in the book, I look at Batman and simply ask, you know, what going on here especially in terms of what's represented as normal or ideal when it comes to gender and sexuality and I think there's there's so much interesting stuff in there and some people definitely have looked into Batman and Robin I mean it's even uh, SNL you know has the ambiguously gay duo which is very much modeled on Batman and Robin and if you look at representations from the 30s and 40s in the comics today I mean it's so gay it's just, they're, Batman and Robin are, are are tanning themselves in these lights that are, uh, it's like, it's nighttime, but they have these tan lights, and they just have these little towels covering their their bottoms. And, you know, there's all these little scenes that if you think of it as maybe these two are gay, then there's so much, quote unquote, evidence for that, right? And so people have talked about that, joked about it got worried about it in terms of uh, Frederick Wortham and the psychiatrists who who were very scared that comics would turn kids gay. And so there's this whole history of that kind of reading. And I wanted to move away from that a little bit because I'm not as interested, primarily because it's been talked about, about Batman and Robin. What I'm more interested in is Batman and the Joker, because these two are sort of equals. I mean, obviously, the, it, there's so many iterations of these characters. so. In some cases, Robin is quite old, actually. Dick Grayson is, you know, on level with Batman. They're definitely both adults, but in the early days, he was definitely not an adult. And so there's all these other issues to consider that, you know, can get really problematic. But in terms of Batman and the Joker, these two are sort of polar opposites when it comes to crime, at least, on some level. But they're also the same person when you look at them from a different lens. And so the Joker was created... He was one of the first villains to appear in Batman, and he has all of these symbols that when you actually start to read it through a, a queer lens or, th- or through a, a queering, just looking at it f- in terms of what are the assumptions and what are the, what are the ideas that might be hidden under the surface here. I mean, the Joker is wearing lavender, which is, uh, among other things, uh, sort of indication that this might be a queer character. And people in the 30s, 40s would have understood that, at least, maybe not the 12-year-old boys reading it, but a lot of the people, that was a sort of symbol. So were pansies. You know, pansy is still used as a derogatory term in some cases, but the Joker surrounds himself often with flowers. You know, he has a poison flower that he shoots acid from. Um, He looks like he's wearing makeup. He acts in a sort of feminine, flamboyant way. And so all of these are coded as queer And that continues up until today, but the assumptions are a little bit different. But one of the things I argue is that from the beginning, the Joker was one of many in popular culture, queer villains. And it was just easier because uh, in the dominant culture and the dominant discourses, queer is bad, criminal is bad. So why not put those together and make a quick and easy stereotype? But also, and this is to me more interesting, the Joker is a perfect kind of uh, red herring in a sense, because Batman slash bruce wayne his alter ego and you know they're both the same person but in different ways different performances batman can be read as um as queer as well and i think that's the troubling part for some readers is that batman can definitely be read as queer and I, that doesn't mean that batman is definitely gay or anything and i go into detail about how we can read batman queerly without making assumptions about his sexuality i mean it's just a drawing after all right so we could, it's very much for us to interpret but the Joker works as a way of making Batman look straighter and more, quote unquote, normal. And that's also part of a history of in popular culture of having a gay villain so that the hero can be more easily read as straight and preferable in terms of his actions. So that's one of the dynamics I look at.
2: And, and so you start um, in your first chapter really talking about or sort of setting this up and setting that up with, um, looking at some of the romantic relationships of Batman and Bruce Wayne and how they, they might, um, have sort of notions of heteronormativity, but they're still sort of outside the norm. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about that a little bit about what you saw going on, um, with Batman and his, his sort of relationships with women?
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of people. There has been a debate way before I started writing this book about is Bat, could Batman be gay? Is Batman gay? And that came about also in the '60s with uh, Adam West and with the Joel Schumacher films. That was uh, a more you know heavy-handed motif that can easily be read in Batman and Robin when that came out. And so there are there are these questions out there. And what I say first of all is that you know as i said earlier he's a he's a drawing that people have created he's not he's not a real person and so i don't think you can easily say that he is gay or he's not gay or, or these kinds of questions don't make a lot of sense when you when you step back but what does he represent in terms of aspirations for you know a heteronormative um hegemonic masculinity there are different words that we could use to describe it but basically you know a man's man the perfect man what does that look like and the thing I find most interesting is that Bruce Wayne is a character that this character is playing. So, the the Batman Bruce Wayne person, the character, plays these different roles, performs these different actions, behaves in certain ways. Right? He behaves as Bruce Wayne, the uh, sort of dandy playboy who is lazy and sleeps in, and that's why he's not seen in public. Uh, he's you know not to be paid attention to. That's the the motif he tries to. Um, he cultivate in the media of of his Gotham City because that way they don't nobody realizes that he's Batman he's actually quite a hardworking, uh, t- the world's greatest detective all of this stuff right so he tries very hard as Bruce Wayne to put on this persona he's in the early days has a pipe with him he has his, his smoking jacket on he lounges he's uh, he's you know the man about town who's jet-setting and doing all these things and so one of the things you need to do is you have to have girlfriends and you have to have beautiful girlfriends that's what a quote unquote normal guy should be doing and he does that but what what's kind of clear from the early stages with julie madison and other like vicky vale other people who come along throughout his his time is that he's not that interested in them he's not interested really in any of them that's kind of clear from the way he acts julie madison just appears one day as his fiance in the comics and then disappears just as quickly and just says, you know, I don't want to be with you anymore. And the whole time Batman or Bruce Wayne is, he seems fine with that. He just moves on to a new person because these seem to be placeholders for him because that's what a real man should do. And once you start to look for that, I think it becomes, we might not be using uh, queer theory or cultural studies terms, but we can understand that he's performing a role. And that role is, you know, the, the normal heteronormative guy who has these girlfriends and goes out on dates. And so he's doing that. But we always get a sense that he's doing that because people are watching him as Bruce Wayne, the world's most eligible bachelor. And once you start to unpack that, you realize that Bruce Wayne is very much acting as he thinks he should act for the public. And we are what I argue is we are all doing that. We're all putting on a certain performance of what we think uh, a male should be or a female should be, what a straight person should be or a gay person should be. But we all have these ideas in the back of our minds. And Bruce Wayne helps highlight that in the way he treats his, um, his sexual partners, right? He never actually has sex, at least in the comics or in most of them. And it's presumed that maybe he, he is or isn't behind the scenes. And you could say that this is for kids, and so they're not going to show that kind of stuff. But he also doesn't show interest in them other than saying like, oh, yeah, I have a girlfriend and, you know, I'm not. He's basically putting up a sign saying, hey, I'm a normal guy. But we see how hard he works to create that performance. And to me, that's the first step in basically understanding more about how gender and sexuality work in general is that we're all performing something. It doesn't have to be as flamboyant and overt as someone like the Joker. I think Bruce Wayne is a more interesting drag. Per- I call it a sort of drag performance because in some cases, Bruce Wayne actually does um, dress as a woman for disguise. But in other cases, he's always kind of putting on this performance. It's just not as overt as if you were going to, you know, a drag performance where somebody is obviously putting on a performance. I think his his subtle performance is much more interesting.
2: And in some ways, like, uh, it, it seems that Batman has much more has more solid relationships with women and with uh, others than Bruce Wayne does right and those continued mm-hmm. relationships which is really interesting as well
1: yeah i mean i mean once you really start to unpack over time one of his only constant relationships relationships is with the joker and that to me is very interesting because you wouldn't think that would be the case. You wouldn't think he would have an intimate relationship with the Joker, especially after he's designed as this homicidal homosexual who is, you know, a master of chaos and Batman is trying to restore order to the world. But they're very much inseparable throughout all the years. Whereas women, Julie Madison early on, Vicki Vale, uh, St. Cloud, Silver St. Cloud, all of these people, Talia Al Ghul, they come in and out of the picture and he has these sort of brief affairs with them, but they never really last. Whereas the Joker is the only lasting relationship that Batman and slash Bruce Wayne sort of continue to have for close to a, closer to a century now. And so there's definitely something there that is not there with all of these women that come in and out of his life. And I argue that that's kind of a metaphorical idea or representation, it can be read as a representation of how the world works, how North American popular culture works in representations of sort of straight and queer people more broadly, because Batman needs the Joker in order to have any kind of meaning as a hero. He needs that villain to kind of point at and say, I'm the opposite of you. Joker similarly needs Batman to say, you are the other half of me. I need you. You need me. I think in our culture the way it's been constructed for the last hundred or so years uh straight people wouldn't exist without gay people without that idea of the homosexual so that you can point to yourself if you are heterosexual and say i'm not that and you know you need that dynamic which sounds perhaps weird or counterintuitive to people who haven't really thought about that or, or read much queer theory but yeah straight people can't exist without gay people And vice versa. Batman can't exist without the Joker. And I think there's a lot of interesting connections once you start to unpack that dynamic.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Right. And so when we get into Joker, you, you know, so you focus on the different ways that Joker is sort of pushing against um, sort of traditional masculinity roles that he does right away in his first appearances, right? You, you mentioned some of the ways his physical being sort of disrupts gender but he also does this um, disrupting of sort of social norms and institutional norms can so can you talk a little bit of, more about um besides the sort of physical appearance the other ways in which he is sort of pushing against um s- and, and sort of queering i uh, have queering identities um socially and in those ways
1: yeah for sure i think i mean the joker is part of a much longer tradition, thousands of years tradition of the trickster in culture and myth and storytelling. And the trickster is one of those characters that you either love to hate or hate to love because he's really interesting and you can't look away from him, but he's also not someone you want around if he were you know, coming to your house or something. And so he breaks all of these um, rules and one of the traditional ways that a trickster works is, you know, he breaks the rules to show you that these rules exist and that why they exist. Because usually what happens is he breaks the rule and then chaos ensues and then order is restored, usually thanks to the hero. And so Batman and the Joker follow along in that kind of tradition. And in doing so, the trickster is also always outside of a clear box. And so if you want to label him as a clear, you know, gay villain, he'll do something that's, you know, not in that vein at all. And so that'll problematize it. Or if you want to think that he's a straight person, then that'll problematize it too. And so that is, in and of itself, a sort of queer behavior. So queer in the sense that it doesn't quite fit. And that can be seen as a negative, but it can also, and what I would try to argue, not necessarily only with the Joker, but queering in this way can be Uh, liberating as well, because you're not limiting yourself to this one little box. You're going in and outside of these borders. And yeah, in some ways that can be really liberating, of course, when he's going in and outside of these criminal borders, like, you know, murdering people, then that's a different story. But the Joker understands the rules of society very, very well. This is one of the main arguments of the book. Batman and the Joker both really closely observe the way that society works the expectations that society has batman tries to uphold those things for the most part and fit within them the joker wants to expose them for these arbitrary rules that people have made up and that they have given way too much power to and so he'll get into uh, a fireman outfit and sneak into a place and he'll say to his henchmen you know people will treat us better because they think we're firemen and so we'll be able to steal all these things don't worry about it, this is how society works, right? He'll make a courtroom and this to me, especially recently in, in our culture in, in America right now, the Joker makes a courtroom where he's the judge and he's the jury and he's the uh, uh, attorney and he's all of these people, right He's the stenographer, and he follows the procedure that w- the way you're you know quote unquote supposed to, right He follows the, the court proceedings as they should be. But he also shows how arbitrary some of this stuff is and how the illusion of objective, unbiased um, courts, law, um, social structures, how that illusion just falls on its face when the Joker starts doing it like anyone else would. And so he is constantly kind of going into roles and exposing how this idea of a straight-laced square that you can... You know, put these labels on. It doesn't work because if I can do it, if I can take over the UN, if I can take over the courts, if I can take over um, the mayor's office in a in a recent story, then how great or how perfect can these systems be? And what he ultimately exposes, I think, which is a a scary thing if you're really into the social structure, like the, the traditional conservative social structures, but possibly a liberating thing if you think about some of these barriers like uh, homophobia that you want to break, the Joker is a perfect, he breaks everything. And in some ways that can be really good. And in some ways that can be very scary and disruptive. And so regardless, he's somebody that you can't look away from.
2: And we can't have a discussion about Joker without Harley Quinn. Um, Right. For so many reasons, but you know, she has become like quintessential in this, just in, in this Joker verse. Right. So can, and you bring her up and you talk about her a bit. So can you just talk about what you see her role is in this relationship and, and what you see going on with her?
1: Yeah, she very much like the Joker can be read in so many different ways and appears in different versions that you, you can't pin her down. You can't say that, that she is a representative of, you know, um, feminine liberation or women's liberation but you also can't say that she's you know pushing women down because she is liberating in some ways and so again she doesn't fall nicely into any category but she was introduced in the animated series in the 90s and she continues to be you know more popular than ever with her more recent films coming out um yeah margot robbie does such an amazing job as as an actress uh in that role i think Regardless of how people feel about the films themselves, I think, you know, she does a great job personifying that character who is very much larger than life, like the Joker, but falls into a few different things. I mean, one thing I briefly discuss in the book is that women in Gotham City are more able to go in and out of a a sort of uh, heteronormative expectations, right? So Harley Quinn can have an affair or a relationship with Poison Ivy, another woman. And that's sort of allowed in the mainstream comics and in the mainstream ideas, the DC universe. That's something that Batman, I don't think, could ever do, at least right now and at least in the mainstream. I mean, people can write fan fiction about uh, Batman or Robin being gay. Harley Quinn can actually do that in the books and it's fine. And so she represents, some, in some ways, um, boundary breaking in arguably a good way in terms of adding more representation and diversity into the books she's also somebody who's very bad in some ways you know like a criminal murderer but also very good like she has you know you might be able to read her as having a heart of gold in some iterations and so she's sexually objectified but then she's also very much empowered i mean she's just so hard to pin down and that's again one of the reasons why the trickster is such a A fun character but also a scary character like you you would love to watch harley quinn do her thing but you wouldn't want her visiting you in your house and so yeah and and her relationship with the joker also adds just another layer right so they may have a relationship and i mean they do but also he's very violent towards her and he seems um, more focused on batman than her and in fact in the first comic iteration of Harley Quinn, she gets pushed out a window from the Joker when she's trying to get him into bed because he's focused on Batman. And so obviously there's a lot you can read in terms of that. But yeah, I mean, Harley Quinn continues that tradition of the trickster and in some really powerful ways right now, especially in terms of gender and sexuality, I'd say.
2: And I have to, because I thought one of the things you talk about, um, it's also, right, this idea of the sort of institutionalizing and the ways and sort of pushing against and querying the institutionalizing. And I really found it fascinating when you talked about um, Joker with the, I'm trying, I think it was in the 50s or 60s, where he was um, at the at the college and the university yeah. and that idea of white male privilege. Alternative so of steps, yeah. Yeah. So can you just because I thought it was really interesting. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about um, that and that example?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's one of, I think, my favorite examples, and that's why I use it in the book. But he he sees that it both Batman and Robin as um, as their normal personas, right, as as Bruce Wayne and, and Dick are walking shopping for a girlfriend that may or may not exist they just kind of mention her as an excuse for them to go shopping uh which again just as an aside is one of those interesting ways that batman is you know shopping for diamonds which could be read as as sort of gay but also you know he just has that excuse like no no it's for my girlfriend so anyway there's that but that's when the story starts and they see all these guys these bros you know because college is only white guys in in this time period, or at least that's the impression that you get from the comic, but they're doing crazy stuff. Um, you know, they're one kid. This to me again, this is why you can go back 80 years and just reread and resee all of this stuff. So this kid, uh, white kid, college kid, shoots a cop with a uh, snake, like a fake snake, right? Um, so the cop gets freaked out for a second, but then he's like, "Oh, you rascal!" and With today's discourses of, you know, police violence it's just such a a jarring image, but it also speaks to a lot of the privileges that might have gone unnoticed earlier, right? We see these things now and we see, wow, look at that sort of white male privilege. It was there in the 50s, but we we wouldn't have had the same tools to understand it. But anyway, the Joker understands it. The Joker sees this and says to himself and his gang, if I can... um, basically act like i'm in a fraternity or that i'm part of a hazing ritual i can get away with all this stuff because these kids are getting away with all this stuff and so that's the premise of that the one storyline is that he you know he um they dress like firemen in that in that case they also kidnap batman and they make robin do all of these hazing rituals like uh you know shine shoes uh buy a doll which is the most embarrassing like think about this kid who has fought and killed in some cases criminals and all this stuff but you know buying a doll a girl's doll is the most embarrassing thing that could possibly happen to robin and so this is a kid who walks around in in tights and everything but anyway so it, it tells you a lot about the social expectations of the time and the way that batman sees it and tells dick to pay attention to these rituals this is how the world works effectively. The Joker sees the exact same message, can play within these exact same rituals, but uses it to his own advantage. And I think, you know, we continue to see those kinds of issues today. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's also when you do a queer reading and you think about things, just asking questions like, what's, what are the expectations? What's normal? What's abnormal? Why is it embarrassing to buy a doll? What are the underlying presumptions there? you see just so much of how the world works. And that's my basic premise of the book is that looking at these examples tells us so much more than just, you know, reading a Batman comic.
2: And and so you sort of, your last sort of chapter looked at sort of some of the spaces, right? Um, and querying of spaces. And so, can you talk a bit about um, the role of Gotham City in this reading for you uh, and sort of what you saw happening in Gotham City and that allowed Bruce Wayne and Batman um, to, and for you to have this sort of read of them?
1: Yeah. So, this, the space of Gotham City and just I think of the space of Gotham City, but also the space of the comics. And in between one image and another, there's all this space. There's this sort of space of possibility in terms of reading. And so, well, first with Gotham City, you know, it used to be New York. Batman was from New York. Then it became Gotham. And then there's this whole issue of how realistic is it, but also is it a real place? You know, Marvel is famous for doing uh, most, if not all, of its content in an actual city, right? So you can see New York in Spider-Man, for example. Batman started off a little bit like that, then became a, a fictional world, and then with Marvel's success, seems to try to also exist. So it's kind of clumsy, I would say, in the way that it works, but it also speaks to the way that the comics work diegetically, like inside the story. And then non-diegetically like how do we read this place in like is this manhattan or is this not manhattan and so is this real or is it not real in the sense that are these things that are going on supposed to happen in a real world scenario or is this a make-believe world in that anything can happen you know there's more magic or there's more uh sci-fi style stuff and so it makes us question as we read our own world and i think that's one of the amazing things about comics in general is that we read these comics as a mirror in some cases like a funhouse mirror, especially when the Joker's involved in other cases, like a a very realistic representation and Batman has tackled a lot of realistic issues over his 80 or so years. Um, but yeah, the space of comics. I mean, the Batman has his cave and you can read that in some sense, like a closet, like a, um, a queer closet where people can can hide out and not have to expose themselves. And, I quote Eve Sedgwick, uh, the epistemology of the closet, or famous book, and Batman's use of the cave falls into that in some ways, right? He, it's a respite from a lot of the the fear and a lot of the stress and a lot of the um, expectations. The the cave is a special place where he doesn't have to, for the moment, deal with a lot of those social expectations, and um, you know, if you think about homosexuality, homophobia, and stuff like that. So those are the, the similarities there where he can uh, sort of just let his guard down. I don't want to say be himself because one of the arguments in the book is that there's no true Batman or Bruce Wayne. He's always doing some kind of performance, but he doesn't have to worry as much about his audience when he's in the cave or when he's in the closet. And the Joker has the... They call it different things in different books, but I like the ha-ha-hacienda. And so the Joker, you know, has places that are instead of hidden, like a closet, they're outside of the norm. They're carnivals or carnivalesque. And, you know, Bakhtin wrote a lot about the carnivalesque as a place where things are flipped, where norms are flipped, where the king is a peasant and the peasant is a king for a day and stuff like that. And so that's clearly where the Joker feels most himself because everything is upside down. And he loves especially the decrepit uh fairgrounds that have been abandoned and we see a lot of um, storylines playing out there and so both of those speak to much broader issues of you know where can if if you are feeling persecuted as for who you are then you definitely need a back cave or a closet or some kind of place where you can escape that at least temporarily and it seems we all have that but it's most well known sort of as the closet Uh, in terms of queer representations. And so Batman can fall into that. The Joker instead wants to put on a production where the rules are flipped. And when he goes to Gotham City, the one storyline I really like is um, the killing joke because I use that as an example. He puts on a tourist outfit when he visits the normal city. Like normally, and I hate to use these words normal, but I think people can understand what I'm saying here is that We tend to, if you're living, say, in Manhattan, that's your normal existence. That's your everyday existence. You go to a carnival for a day and you escape your normal existence, but then you come back to it. The Joker is the opposite, right? His tourism is going to see the quote-unquote normal city. So he wears a tourist outfit when he goes and he shoots Barbara Gordon, who's also Batgirl, and it's a very famous story. But then he drags the commissioner, Jim Gordon, Barbara's father, and then Batman follows later to this decrepit, Uh, fairground where he tries to make everybody just accept insanity as a great alternative to the norm and to me that speaks so much to these two characters and what they represent but also society more broadly and how we represent spaces that where things are or are not appropriate
2: yeah and so one sort of one last question about this that I you know, when you're just sort of talking about all this. Um, you also talk a bit about how um Batman and the Joker are resurrected all right. They they often have many deaths um and live again um and even die together at some points. And and so can you talk a little bit about that sort of the the resurrections or the the reinventing of Batman and and how you sort of see that play out as and the Joker and how you see that sort of play out as well
1: yeah I actually you know I'm inspired by a lot of people but especially Michel Foucault in this book uh, who's just you know such a brilliant author and I, I quote him towards the end and He says this in in the beginning of The Archaeology of Knowledge, one of at least for me, one of the most influential books in terms of my scholarship. And so Michel Foucault, French philosopher, he says, uh, do not ask who I am and do not ask me to remain the same. Leave it to our bureaucrats and our police to see that our papers are in order. And so he talks about how he sort of, even himself, Michel Foucault, the person, will pop up one way, and then when you think you've captured him, he will pop up in a different way. And he's a very famous queer theorist. Uh, he, he, he faced a lot of challenges. He also produced such amazing work. And to me, we can see that I'm not saying they're the same, but we can definitely see a lot of those characteristics in both Batman and the Joker. You think you have them pinned down and they will pop up anew and they will challenge you. And then as soon as you think you have him pinned down, whether that's the Joker or the Batman, he will appear somewhere else. And so they and on some level remain the same right They're, you can always kind of recognize batman and the joker but they are also so versatile especially in their history that they can wear different clothes they can have different attitudes they can have maybe their their brains change you know they can be um hypnotized or whatever there's all these different stories and and they can even become one another which has happened on a few occasions but yeah they can frequently die and be resurrected as new characters for a new time. And that's happened in in the last few years. Scott Snyder's done an amazing job. Um, King has also done an amazing job of writing new Batman and Joker, but also building on that older Batman and Joker. And so to me, the idea of reinventing yourself in that way can be very liberating, but it's also very queer. You can't be pinned down. You are not stuck to this idea of a norm that you think you ought to pursue. And yet there is something there. And you know, that gets a little tricky in terms of you don't want to become an essentialist, or at least I don't, in terms of my writing, but there's also something that makes Batman Batman. You know, it matters when he says I'm Batman. And he can say it, but if somebody else were to say it, it wouldn't work. So anyway, yeah, the two of them can continually rebuild for the societies in which they exist, right? And so Batman has traditionally gone from kind of a soft um character. Early on, you know, wear, wearing very like floppy. I like his floppy cowl in the, one of the first ones, and especially in the uh, the serials that he did during the war, uh, that were you know available for people to go see and matinees and stuff. You know, he's very floppy. Like he would never survive one shot, let alone you know maybe a good punch or something. The characters as they represented themselves there. But then once you get Michael Keaton and especially Christian Bale. You have super armor, military-grade stuff. And that speaks to the time period, you know, when Batman came out. And this is Will Brooker's argument, another great writer who's done some work on Batman, that, you know, the Christian Bale Batman, the Christopher Nolan Batman, they come from post-9-11 society. And so they're very much worried about um, military, global issues, and... That's what we see in that. Whereas obviously in the 60s, Adam West, you know, gets slipped a Mickey and does, so he does drugs in his first thing and does a a dance and, um, you know, a go-go dancer dies in the first episode of the Adam West show. And so these are things that are on the mind of people in the 60s, perhaps, and they continually rebuild themselves, much like James Bond, I argue, has done that. And there are a few characters who have survived Superman, although each character does it in a different way and i think batman has and the joker have such rich rich histories of blending in with what they where of where they exist you know i use the analogy that i borrow of you know james bond is like vodka he can be mixed with whatever he and blend into it right so he can be mixed with coke or vermouth or um whatever you want to mix in your drink, and he will blend into that drink, right? Batman works in the same way where he can be mixed with a post-9-11 fear of terrorism, and he will work. And he can also be mixed with a 1960s kind of free love vibe, and that will work. He's just, they're both amazing characters. And the way that they continue a story, but also change it with their you know choice of clothing, choice of uh, adventure, whatever they get themselves into, speaks very heavily to to what we're all thinking about in general at the time.
2: Yeah, I'm very interested to see um what happens with Robert Pattinson. Yeah. Um <laughs> become which I have a different ish, different feel <laughs> about that than my students do. Um yes, especially since the Joker that we have last seen was just for me a very fabulous Joker. Um, yeah, I'm a little worried about Batman
1: with Wiquin Phoenix, you mean? Yes, yeah. yes
2: um, So uh, so we've been talking about this for a while so usually my final question to you is if, um, what are you working on is there anything else you're working on now? I know this is sort of a crazy time so there you know might be things that are coming along or anything with this book that you sort of you're do you have a final plug for anything?
1: Yeah well, I, I very consciously, I mean, it's a short work. It's uh, part of the Focus series with Routledge, which is uh, geared towards shorter books. And so I, I couldn't I couldn't write, obviously, everything that I would love to write about Batman and, and that world. And so I very much focused on these two men and the question of gender and sexuality. There are so many interesting women. And that's kind of my next project is thinking about uh, a lot of the women, including you know, Poison Ivy and Harley Quinn and and Catwoman. There's there's a rich history, more so than a lot of other places in terms of popular culture, where the women have a, a really strong presence and in very interesting ways and can do things, as I said before, that the men can't necessarily do, especially when it comes to gender and sexual sexual expectations. And so I'm thinking about that for sure. I actually got into this when a retiree in my area, I'm a little bit outside Atlanta, uh, came to the area, had all of these comics, uh, I think we estimated like $100,000 worth or something, and donated them to my college, Young Harris College. And so that sparked a lot of interest in in further pursuing what was already an interest of mine, comics. This person has now, in the last year, um, come out full-time as a trans woman And I had no idea when we were talking about this at first, when I met Andy, that this was an issue that they were considering that was on on her mind. Uh, She's now Diana. She goes by Diana. And we have had some really great talks about how the trans world fits or can be seen in parallel with Batman and, and superheroes more generally. And there are so many interesting connections about performance, behavior, expectations, costumes that um, I'm not sure whether that will be part of the, the Women of Gotham City book that I'm working on or its own complete separate project. But uh, I'd like to continue thinking about those things because there's, there's so much ground that we can continue to see and I think ultimately better reflect on what it is that we do, whether we consider ourselves, you know, straight or gay, or queer, or whatever sort of labels or non-labels we wish to use, I think it benefits us from reflecting on how performance works in a place like Batman and how we can read between the lines of one image to another, and how that also reflects what it is we're doing and how our societies work. So I wanna continue that thread definitely.
2: So it's been great talking to you again. This was um, Chris Richardson, who's the author of Batman and the Joker, Contested Sexuality and Popular Culture. Um, thanks for talking to me on New Books Network, New Books and Popular Culture.
1: Thank you so much, Rebecca. It was great talking to you.